0: Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals Podcast. You're listening to Hammer and Nails. This is Episode 3. Van Melsen Reads a Book.
1: Do you need anything else, Diane? No, we're good, thanks. Are we good to go, Andy?
2: Whenever you're ready, D.
1: Hello, you're listening to the Woodrow Show. This is your host, Diane Woodrow. Today we'll once again be continuing our conversation with renowned paranormal investigator Peter Van Melsen as he recounts his involvements in the Hammerton horror. Mm-hmm. The dreadful events surrounding a group of curious teenagers. And a remote estate on the oh, Yorkshire coast. Things.
0: Where are those bloody things? Looking for these? Oh! <laughs> oh, yes. Please continue.
1: I'm talking to Peter in the seclusion of his favourite haunt, Rosedale Chapel, here in the quiet North Yorkshire village of the same name. I believe you were about to tell us about your trip to see a friend about a book.
0: Ah, yes, of course. As I was saying, my old friend Norman was bound to have a tome or two on the subject of haunted houses—particularly those located throughout the British Isles. I use the word haunted for lack of a better word to describe the nature of dwellings in which strange or macabre events have rendered them uninhabitable. I've often found that the most comprehensive studies on the subject, naturally, are conducted by those with a genuine interest in the supernatural, or unexplained phenomena. Now, I must preface this account by saying that Kane's rare books is by no means a specialist dealer in esoterica and the occult. Norman's collection is as multifarious as it is formidable.
1: I'll be sure to reiterate that in the episode description, Peter.
0: Much obliged, Diane. But— With that said, Norman is in possession of one or two volumes that are not so easily acquired these days. One of these is Charles Baxter's Tainted Tenements, first published 1898, which deals with supernatural activity in domestic households. Another is the more recent Book of Abandon, which lists estates and premises of ill repute throughout the country. Book of Abandon found its way into the hands of private collectors in the late 1990s. Its author is unknown.
1: I'm familiar with Baxter's works, but I can't say Book of Abandon rings a bell.
0: Well, it notes the approximate whereabouts of certain hard-to-find properties. Rare book collectors are always on the lookout for it, due to the fact that its contents continue to provide evidence in support of a long-standing rumour— A rumour suggesting that, in years gone by, certain wealthy landowners paid exorbitant amounts of money to the government in order to have their remote acreages scratched from the land registry. To what end? Allegedly to conduct controversial business with impunity.
1: Smells fishy to me, Peter.
0: Fishy indeed, Diane. Though I must tell you, it was the very same rumour that led me to seek out the book in question— I felt assured that Cain would be in possession of a copy, and that its contents would shed light on that which I sought—a strange house at the heart of a vast forest. And, with a bit of luck, it might just offer some insight into the whereabouts of our would-be vampire, too. Could our mysterious mastermind be a descendant of a family whose homestead had been scratched from the land registry in centuries past? <coughs> Excuse me. Well, my assumptions were of absolutely no value hovering above my head in the void that passes for my library, and so I made plans to make the journey to Manchester—by train, naturally. Gaines Rare Books is centrally located, on Tibb Street, in Manchester's northern quarter, but it's easily overlooked, owing to the fact that the shopfront is one of the narrowest in the city. A slim doorway is all that shields its glorious interior from the wandering gaze of a nonchalant metropolitan population.
1: Not a city man, are you, Peter?
0: Forgive me, Diane. I'll just get to the point. Norman was expecting me, and I was relieved to step into the safety of his lair, as it were, and out of the crisp mid-October cold that had gnawed at my cheeks since departing Victoria Station— Hmm, how would one describe the man? He's a quiet Lancastrian, usually well-dressed, and, most notably, sports a pair of prosthetic hands. You wouldn't miss him in a crowd, Diane, (laughs) and he wouldn't mind me saying so either. (laughs) But, But these details aside, Norman is an honest, reliable fellow, fiercely dedicated to his work anyway. We took our usual places by the piano that serves as a bookshelf. I visit at least twice a year, you know, and I talked him through the whole bit. Other than the occasional verbal nod, he kept his mouth shut throughout. But I could tell the cogs were whirring. And, as soon as my monologue reached its conclusion, he was up on his feet, in quest of the Book of Abandon. So there I was, sitting by the piano, eyeballing a rather attractive first edition of Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, when Norman returned to my side, clutching the aforementioned book. He dropped it into my lap, and proceeded to recount the circumstances surrounding its acquisition. Apparently, the book had made its way onto the shelves of a charity shop on the outskirts of Preston. The shop's owner, a friend of Kane's, made contact with him after noticing the book, wedged between a couple of tattered hardbacks, towards the back of the shop.
1: And he had no idea how it ended up there?
0: None, whatsoever. Perhaps there's something in the name, Book of Abandon, that determines its fate. Nevertheless, Norman was quick to collect it, knowing only too well its potential value. An odd volume, by all accounts. Hardback, this edition, complete with dust-jacket but the cover featured no text whatsoever. A blank, navy-blue buckram met my gaze, offering no indication of what awaited me within. Genuine copies are identified by a curious watermark on the book's first page—the letters A.A.B. Some claim the letters are the author's initials, but this, of course, is conjecture. Whomever the author is, or was, as the case may be, he or she is privy to a great deal of Forbidden information.
1: Is Cain's copy genuine?
0: Oh, absolutely. There's no mistaking that watermark. Anyway, there we were, Norman and me, poring over the thing, scouring its plentiful pages, in search of hidden houses on the moorlands and coastal regions of North Yorkshire. Just picture it, Diane. The two of us, walled in by rare tomes by the piano— sifting through the pages of a book of secrets. The Blackwood Estate. Robin's Cove. Why does that ring a bell? Robin's Cove. It's on the coast, for sure. It's triggered something, Norman. Though I can't be sure what, exactly. An old case? I think so. It says here, The Blackwood Estate. Robins Cove, north of Whitby. Sprawling estate. Large mansion hemmed in by forest. Is that it? Certainly sounds like it.
2: Hmm. One moment. Mm. Blackwood. Mm, Blackwood. Where are you? Mm. Aha! What is it? Blackwood. Thomas Blackwood. Chemist. I knew I'd heard the name before. Thomas Blackwood? Yeah. Listen, this is an old book. A sort of 19th century hoo for the northern counties. Hmm. Blackwood operated a pharmacy in York. Hmm. Made a fortune selling homemade remedies and overpriced placebos. Oh. Had quite a reputation throughout North Yorkshire. And according to this here book Mm -hmm. spent his winters in the city and his summers on the cove. Robin's Cove? Could be, but the plot thickens. Mm. Towards the end of the Industrial Revolution, there were a number of deaths in York. Each one of them attributed to the consumption of arsenic. Mm. Blackwood, the bugger, was putting the stuff in his tonics. Appetite stimulants and the like. My word! As I said, had quite the reputation... Could it be that he paid his way out of trouble? And in doing so, paid his way to exile?
0: Hmm. An intriguing supposition, old friend. What is it, Peter? It's like you said. An old case. Do you remember that, uh, situation in Fossbridge back in 98? (laughs) How could I forget? Could it be that those events were somehow tied to this Blackwood character? I shouldn't think so. The chap would have been over 200 years old! <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I suppose so. I suppose so. But still.
1: Situation in Fossbridge
0: Well, Diane, I should, in the first instance, address the nature of my professional relationship with Norman Cain. I've had a fascinating but difficult career, and on a number of occasions I've been in need of assistance— In my line of work, there are few individuals one can turn to, this being due to the very niche nature of the job. But Norman, with his eclectic collection of rare books, and armed with the knowledge such tomes impart, has always been an incredibly reliable repository of information, whether my queries border on the natural, or the supernatural. So vital, has his assistance been at times, that I've invited him along on a number of cases— one such case involved a spate of individuals coming back from the dead in the small hamlet of Fossbridge, near Whitby.
1: Coming back from the dead? Did I hear that right?
0: A dreadful case, by all accounts.
1: Hmm. Hi, can I help you? Who's that? Excuse me? What is it, Nance? Uh not sure. <clears throat> Sorry?
0: Oh, just... Nancy? Tell, tell Peter uh, I'll be in touch. Oh, okay, okay. I'm sorry, Diane.
1: I'm not sure who that was, or what he wanted. Never
0: mind, Nancy. He lives in the village. Gets confused, that's all.
1: Someone you know, Peter?
0: His name is Wilfred. Lives a few doors down from the chapel here. Pesters me to look into the death of his wife whenever he bumps into me.
1: Have you looked into the death of his wife?
0: That's just it, Diane. Wilfred never married... Like I said, gets confused. His sort tend to end up in places like this, unfortunately.
1: Places like this?
0: Quiet places. Out-of-the-way places. Some folks just never get used to it.
1: But you've got used to it, of course.
0: Well, Diane, I believe we've already established that I'm not a city man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, about those people who... came back from the dead...
0: Oh, I'll get there, Diane. But first, allow me to take you back to my discussion with Norman. Yes. Well, I felt rather strongly that the strange house at the heart of a vast forest I sought was, in fact, the Blackwood estate mentioned in the Book of Abandon. Blackwood's shady history certainly added a great deal of plausibility to the idea that he had paid his way to exile, as Norman put it. And to boot, there was the mention of Robin's Cove, a name etched into my memory following that particularly gruesome case nearby. I was satisfied that I had gleaned all the information I could from Norman and the Book of Abandon, and so, with his kind permission, I borrowed his Who's Who Book of 1852— Which in reality was named Directory of Tradesmen or something along those lines, and returned, post haste, to the quiet and isolated splendour of Rosedale. But there was something else, Diane, something that troubled me a lot more than I was prepared to admit at the time. Well, upon leaving the bookshop, I stepped out into the bustle of a Friday afternoon in the northern quarter and made my merry way along Tibb Street onto Thomas Street, in the direction of the train station. But it was just as I was passing the south end of Salmon Street— a dreary place at the best of times— that I saw something loitering at the back of the Centre for Chinese Contemporary Art. Now, given all we've discussed thus far, I imagine you've formed a fairly robust, if not completely irrational— image of the things allegedly witnessed by the teenagers in this case—bizarre apparitions born of wonder-moth stings and punk-induced phantasmagoria, etc. Well, the thing my gaze fell upon in the shade of that building on Salmon Street, was precisely the creature that had been described to me by Patrick Jones—the monstrous entity that had stalked Grant Smith following a visit to that strange house during his punk-induced trip. I saw a huge, hulking shape, covered with hair, rocking back and forth, as if unable to steady itself. But worst of all, Diane, across its grotesque face was a terrible, ear-to-ear grin, revealing row after row of razor-sharp teeth. Ooh. But it didn't come after me, this creature. It simply gazed and grinned. And— As I turned to flee, I heard laughter, the shrill tones of a tortured individual, the haunter of Patrick Jones's nightmares, James Barker, a.k.a. the Laughing Man. I tell you, Diane, I was out of there faster than the top speed of the train I was about to board.
1: I can almost picture it, Peter. But why? I mean, why did it—or they—appear
0: to you? "'I'll—I'll I'll never know for sure, but I feel quite strongly that I was stung during my time in Patrick Jones's bedroom. It's possible that the pesky wander responsible for the whole mess had remained there. If anything, I believed the vision was intended as a warning—something was crying, cease and desist. It troubled me terribly, Diane, but I didn't want to dwell on it too much.' it was absolutely vital that I remained focused on the task at hand. I was more concerned with the true nature of the strange house at the heart of a vast forest—that mysterious nexus existing simultaneously in both the waking world and the punk-induced illusory world—the nature of it, and of the thing that might dwell there.
1: Our would-be vampire?
0: Precisely. Strange sightings aside, I made my way back to Rosedale without incident, and spent several days in solitude, studying the book I borrowed from Norman. I absorbed everything I could learn about Thomas Blackwood, and was, fortuitously, able to find a number of references to the chemist in several books in my collection. The commonalities were as follows. Blackwood was a wealthy, quiet individual— well-respected amongst his peers, the owner of at least three properties between York and Whitby, and the chief suspect in a number of arsenic-related deaths. Other than the reference in the Book of Abandon, though, I could find absolutely no mention whatsoever of Robin's Cove. The town, hamlet, estate, or whatever you might want to call it, simply did not exist. Which, naturally— meant that I had to find it. <laughs> yes, yes.
1: Which brings us to an important point, Peter. Mm. It seems that you confirmed the rumour that landowners once paid to have their estates removed from the land registry.
0: Well, yes, but as is often the case with my work, the natural aspects are often of secondary concern.
1: But still, revelations like that can only add plausibility to other areas of your work.
0: On that point, Diane, the jury is still out.
1: I'm sure it is. Please continue.
0: Well, at the very least, I had a direction in which to head—the North Yorkshire coast. But before making the journey, I felt it pertinent to check in with DCI Brent. Following an invitation, he was rapping on my door within the hour—always <laughs> a punctual fellow, Mark. He asked what, if anything, I had learned regarding the case— and so I related at length my researches—my talks with the boys Gordon and Jones, and my visit to Manchester, omitting to mention, out of general courtesy, the creature I saw on Salmon Street. In turn, I asked what he had learned regarding the case, to which he answered solemnly and honestly, very little. It was clear from the way in which he spoke, that he was almost Hopeful that a supernatural force was behind the death of Grant Smith, if only to alleviate an overwhelming sense of failure on his behalf—a sense that I felt was ill-placed. I, on the other hand, found myself wishing the opposite—if only natural causes could be attributed to the deaths of Smith and Barker. And so I bade farewell to Brent, promising to keep him informed of further developments. That night, as my head hit the pillow, I fought to keep the vision of that appalling creature out of my head—fought futilely, I might add. I had further visions of it coming to me in the middle of the night, creeping along the silent landing in the direction of my bedroom door, laughing and wailing at me on the other side. Perhaps whatever is behind all of this can sense my intentions, I thought— It's revealing itself, in an effort to intimidate me. Such thoughts brought me back to my senses. "'As long as I still draw breath, I'll be coming for you,' I whispered to the darkness surrounding me. "'I'll be coming for you.'"
1: Did it show itself to you again that night?
0: "'Fortunately not, Diane. Fortunately not. (laughs) I slept like a baby.'" The following day—by this time, we were in the fourth week of October—I started to make arrangements for a journey across the moors, in the direction of Fossbridge.
1: The town in which people were—how did you phrase it?—coming back from the dead?
0: Exactly. I had to go back. I dimly recalled the residents there speaking of the mysterious Robin's Cove, if only furtively. If I'd heard it anywhere, I'd heard it there
1: I think we'll break here, Peter. Andy?
2: Got it all. I'll leave it running until you've recorded your outro.
1: Thanks. That's all for today, folks. You've been listening to The Woodrow Show with me, your host, Diane Woodrow. Today's guest has been the renowned paranormal investigator Peter Van Melsen. Our conversation on the subject of the Hamilton Horror will continue next Thursday at 8pm. In the meantime... Be sure to share your thoughts in the comments section. Until next time. We're good, Andy. All good. Although I'm familiar with the story, it's surprising how much of it has been completely ignored by mainstream media.
0: Well, tis a world of ignorance we live in, unfortunately.
1: I can't argue with that.
0: You look a little washed out, Diane. Care for a cigarette? You have been listening to Hammer and Nails, a Horror Babble original podcast. This episode was recorded and produced by Ian and Jennifer Gordon, starring Ian Gordon as Peter Van Melsen and Wilfred Anforth, Jennifer Gordon as Diane Woodrow, Max Rudd as Andy Perkins, Jess Gordon as Nancy Peterson, Gary Gordon as Norman Kane. Story and ambient music by Ian Gordon. Artwork by Duncan Kay. Title music, Van Melsen's theme by David Jeffries. Special thanks to Patrick McCone, producer. Copyright 2022 by Horror Babel.